0: The parables of Jesus are among the most popular elements of the Bible, but what are the deeper stories behind them, and how do they relate to the modern day? Welcome to the Parables podcast series, produced by the Archdiocese of Brisbane. In this seven-part series, Archbishop Mark Coleridge takes us deeper into these stories. Thank you for joining us for the Parables Podcasts. In our exploration of the world of the parables, we turn now to Luke's Gospel once again, which has so many of the greatest parables. We're not exactly sure why so many of them find their way into Luke's Gospel. They're not found elsewhere, but they were clearly part of the repertoire of early Christianity that were honed over a, quite a, a long period of time in, in teaching and preaching and find their way eventually into the written texts that we call the Gospel. One of the parables found in Luke's Gospel in chapter 16, in fact, is the parable often known as Deves and Lazarus. Now, I have to say this is a bit of a misnomer because, in fact, although Lazarus, the poor man at the gate, does have a name, sometimes confused with Lazarus who was raised from the dead, but they don't seem to be the same person, though they have the same name, But the other character, or one of the other characters in the parable, has no name at all, the rich man. He's not called Deves in the parable. He might be traditionally, but he is nameless in the parable as Jesus gives it to us or as it's given to us by Luke in his Gospel. It's not by accident that the rich man has no name, and we'll have a look in a minute, as to why that is so. The parable is addressed to the Pharisees once again, who are called lovers of money. Not that there's much evidence that that was typical of Pharisees, but clearly the ones that Jesus is talking to seem to have been in that category. Lovers of money. And the parable will talk about money, but not just about money. And hearing what Jesus has to say about money, we're told they ridicule Jesus. And it's at that point of ridicule that he gives them this parable of the rich man, money, and the poor man at the gate, Lazarus. Now, as with all the other parables, we are introduced initially at least, to a very ordinary human world, at least ordinary in the time that Jesus knew and pretty ordinary in our own time as well as we survey the scene around the world. What we're introduced to is a world where there is a very, very stratified or class-ridden society. Huge inequalities... Here again, I think of the world as we know it. Is it any different? Where the rich felt constrained to indulge in what's often called conspicuous consumption. And we're told of the rich man that he dressed in fine linen and purple and feasted sumptuously every day. Well, that's what I mean by conspicuous consumption. He must have had a big house. He uh, ate big meals and he dressed in the most expensive gear by contrast lazarus had no house he was barely dressed at all and he couldn't even eat the scraps that fell from the rich man's table you see what i mean by great inequalities this was was again quite ordinary and typical of the world that jesus knew It was a world where it seemed only the rich mattered. The poor seemed, as it were, nameless. They didn't have an identity. They didn't matter at all. It's a world where we ask, I guess, how did the rich man become rich? That's still a question today. Perhaps he inherited wealth. Perhaps he was a collaborator with the Roman occupying forces, which was a way of becoming rich. Perhaps he just played the system. Who knows? But he inhabits a world and he profits from a world in which there is great stratification, great inequality, a world where only the rich seem to matter. He is really somebody, this rich man, But he has no name. He might have thought that he was a big name in the world that he inhabited, but in the world that Jesus gives us in the parable, he has no name, no real identity. That's something we'll see that he has to discover. But strangely, the nobody of the parable, the poor man at the gate, He does have a name. He does have an identity. And with that strange touch, the kind of inversion or subversion of the parable begins because this is a parable, like all the others of Jesus, that turns the world as we know it on its head. In the ordinary world, the world as we know it, it should have been the rich man who had the name, he was a big name, he was somebody. And the poor man, well, he was nobody, didn't have a name, he uh, didn't matter, didn't have an identity, really. Why should I notice him? Because, you see, in this sort of world, the expectation would have been the rich man only mixed with his own class. Why would he notice or talk to, let alone help, this poor, pathetic creature, sitting or lying at the gate. That wasn't the expectation within the culture. He only mixed with his peers. So let the poor man mix with his peers if he wants to, but it's not my responsibility as a rich man in my big house and all my money to be mixing with or helping or relating to or getting to know this pathetic creature at the gate. In the parable, Lazarus never speaks. This is again one of the strange touches of the story. Abraham speaks for him eventually, but Lazarus never speaks. As it were, he doesn't have a voice of his own. The rich man speaks, but he only speaks to Abraham. At no stage does the rich man talk to Lazarus. And when he does talk to Abraham, it is to no effect. It's useless speech. The dogs, we're told, notice Lazarus, They come to lick his sores. They notice him, but the rich man doesn't even notice him. In other words, Lazarus was invisible. And here I think of the indigenous people of Australia who for a long, long time, and perhaps still in many ways, have been and are invisible. We just don't see them. Well, again, the rich man wouldn't have seen Lazarus, wouldn't have noticed him, even though the dogs do, because, again, the rich only mix with the rich. They're prisoners of their own class. We're told that eventually, after he's died... The rich man recognises Abraham as father. He calls him Father Abraham, asking him to have mercy. And Abraham replies by recognising the rich man as his son, my son. So here the question of father and son begins to emerge and it is central to the vision of the parable and the vision of the kingdom of God that is generated by the parable. But the rich man, you see, never recognises Lazarus as brother. He recognises Abraham as father, but never recognises Lazarus, never sees Lazarus as brother. Didn't see him at all. The best he can manage is seeing Lazarus as a kind of servant. Didn't see him at all during this life, but now he wants him to be a servant. I beg you, he says to Abraham, send Lazarus to me to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. Who's he worried about? Himself. So he doesn't see Lazarus as his brother. He sees him as a servant now, didn't see him at all, but now sees him as a servant to serve his own purposes. And then he wants Abraham to send Lazarus to his father's house, to his five brothers, again using Lazarus to serve the purposes this time of his family. So Lazarus then is seen as a servant, to serve the purposes of the rich man, but not seen for what he really is, not seen as brother, which according to the parable is his true identity. Until the rich man discovers the truth of fraternity, brotherhood, the chasm remains between him and Lazarus and therefore between him and Father Abraham. There was a chasm on earth between the rich man and Lazarus, a chasm of alienation, non-recognition, invisibility and so on. But what rich man is called to discover, and we with him, is that to be sons of Abraham is to be brother to each other. And that's what the rich man has never discovered, even beyond death, and why the chasm that existed in this life exists in the next as well. The chasm can only be bridged insofar as he discovers and then enters the world of brotherhood or fraternity. He speaks of his own flesh and blood brothers and he feels for them and he feels for them in a way he never did and still doesn't feel for Lazarus. He sees them, is concerned for them in a way that he never saw Lazarus And in a way, he was never concerned for Lazarus. But this is the brotherhood of flesh and blood. And that's not the brotherhood to which the parable looks. In fact, according to Jesus, the rich man will only discover the truth of fraternity and enter the world of brotherhood, the kingdom of God, if he learns to listen. Now, listen is one of the key words of the whole scripture. Shema Yisrael from the book of Deuteronomy, the text that uh, Jewish people recite every day. Listen, Israel, the Lord your God is one. So listening is at the fountainhead of the whole of scripture and it's found at the heart of this parable as well. First of all, the rich man will need to learn to listen to the scripture. As Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. But there's more to the listening to which the rich man is called. Because as well as listening to the scripture, really listening with the ears of the heart and understanding the scripture, which this man may well have known, But to know the scripture is not necessarily to have really listened to the word that scripture speaks. In fact, the rich man has to listen to Lazarus, which he has never done. And in the end, the two listenings are the same thing. To listen to the scripture, really listen to it, the word of God in scripture, will mean listening, really listening, to the voice of Lazarus and all the Lazaruses of this world. And with that listening, the rich man would enter the world of fraternity, the kind of experience of brotherhood that the kingdom of God enables. And at that point, the chasm would be bridged There would be no more chasm because what would come to birth would be the communion of brothers. This in fact takes us back to one of the truly decisive stories in the whole of the scripture and that is the story found in Genesis chapter 4, the story of Cain and Abel, which is the first story of the human being outside the garden, which is our true home beyond the the expulsion from paradise or the self-exile from the garden. There we find the two brothers, Cain and Abel, and Cain kills his brother Abel. And then comes the unforgettable question that God asks of Cain, where is your brother Abel? Now, if God asks a question in the Bible, it's not because God doesn't know the answer to the question. God always knows the answer. It's a summons to the human being to enter the knowledge that God already has. So Cain doesn't know where his brother is. He might know where the corpse is, but he doesn't know where to place his brother in the scheme of things. Cain replies to God's question, by seemingly smart, when he says... I do not know, which is true, he doesn't. Am I my brother's keeper? The answer to which is, no, Cain, you're not your brother's keeper. You are, in fact, your brother's murderer. But in the end, you are your brother's brother. And that's what you, Cain, have to discover. You who have murdered your brother have to come to a recognition that you are your brother's brother. He has to enter the world of fraternity. At the end of that great story of Cain and Abel, we're told that Cain goes off to live in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Now, Nod's got nothing to do with having a snooze. Nod in Hebrew means wandering. So Cain goes off to live in the land of wandering, and at that point of the Bible, the summons to Cain and to the human being, whoever, is to turn all our wandering into journeying. And that, in fact, is the summons of this parable too, that draws on the deep wells of Genesis chapter 4, because the rich man, like Cain, has to discover the world of fraternity, has to discover that Lazarus, the pathetic creature lying at the gate, in fact is his brother. Until he discovers that, he will not only wander, he will be caught in a world where the chasm is in place. In the end, the rich man is presented not necessarily as a bad man, self-absorbed, self-interested, perhaps all of that, but not as a bad person. Similarly, the Pharisees, the lovers of money, are not bad persons, the people to whom Jesus is speaking. But the rich man and perhaps his listeners are presented to us as good people, basically, or at least not bad people, but caught in a bad system. We've seen this before, not bad people but prisoners of a bad system and it's that system that Jesus wants to subvert. Again, his his perspective is not just personal or individual. Jesus is focusing upon a whole world, a whole bad system that produces rich men like the one in the parable and the Lazaruses of this world. Jesus wants to subvert that in order to bring to birth the kingdom of God, which in the end is the good system that God wants to bring about. What we find in this parable relates to something we see later, and it's an important passage, later in Luke's Gospel. In Luke chapter 22, verses 25 to 27... Because there, Jesus speaks very specifically of the kind of world that the rich man and Lazarus knew and that Jesus knew too. Because he says this The rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, the greatest among you must become like the youngest, and the leader. Like the one who serves. Now, the world that Jesus knew, that the rich man knew, and that the poor man knew was a world full of benefactors. There were a few rich people, and if you were poor, the only hope you had of survival, even, was to attach yourself as a client to a rich benefactor. And that would have been what Lazarus was trying to do, sitting or lying at the gate. So so the world of the Roman Empire was a world structured according to benefactor and client, very few benefactors, all of them rich, but millions of clients who could only survive by attaching themselves to a benefactor. And Jesus puts a bomb under that world and says, "You, you are not to be benefactors to anyone, nor are you to be clients. There's only one benefactor, and that is God, and you're all clients. Of God. In that sense, you're all brothers in the language of this parable. So that again, this parable is not a one-off in, in certainly in Luke's gospel, but, but relates to a whole vision of, of, of the, the world as we know it, the bad system that needs to be overturned. And that's what the parable seeks to do. So the vision is it is personal, and the summons of the parable, it's intensely personal but at the same time it implies that Jesus brings to birth a whole new social order uh, and and it has enormous social implications, a thing as seemingly simple as this parable and the other elements of the scripture to which it relates. It is important to look after Lazarus. Again, the, the, the need is immediate and obvious if you've got eyes to see. So we do have to look after all the Lazaruses of this world and how many of them are there? Millions, billions perhaps. But that's not enough because what we're also called to do is to work to change the system which produces Lazarus and all the Lazaruses of this world. How do they end up like that? Earlier we asked the question, how did the rich man become rich? But how did Lazarus become poor? Again, probably because he was born into a poor family, never had a chance in life, and those answers that we could give as much today as as Jesus could give or anyone could give thousands of years ago. So tend Lazarus by all means, that's crucial, but it's not enough. We have to ask the questions which equip us to change the bad system which can hold good people imprisoned. As with all the parables of Jesus, this one is unfinished. One question, obviously, is, well, how did these Pharisees respond to what they heard? Were they locked in a world of ridicule? Did the ridicule become even worse or perhaps did they turn away from the love of money and the great alienations which that brings to tend to the Lazaruses lying at their own gate and do something to change the system that produces the rich men and the Lazaruses of this world? The other question is how do we respond? Only we can finish the parable. How do we respond individually? That's clear. But how do we as the church become a brotherly church? How do we enable the church to become more clearly and powerfully and consistently a church where that experience of brotherhood is not only talked about, but which is actually offered in a world and offered where there are rich men with Lazarus lying at their gates. In other words, a community of the sons and daughters of God where the rich and the poor can come together and embrace as eventually, we trust, Cain and Abel will do. Discovering each other finally as brothers. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Parables podcast series. If you enjoyed this podcast, please follow the Archdiocese of Brisbane on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube, or subscribe for more podcasts on iTunes or Spotify.